Welcome to all the I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the Bill Gann College of Pharmacy. It is April 8th, 2021. We have a bit to talk about today. I'm going to talk about <clears throat> some uh, some maybe new information about the COVID-19 vaccine in patients uh, with cancer. Uh, a really exciting uh, study called the Amboro study, uh, demonstrating the benefit and value of uh oncology pharmacist uh, managing oral chemotherapy and then a couple FDA updates uh, to end but before we do that I want to talk about um, <clears throat> errors that are made on podcasts and I made one uh, last week uh, when I talked about checkmate 577 uh, and I, I just uh, in reading the article just completely missed it <clears throat> that they did define adjuvant treatment of nivolumab and limit that to one year duration uh, I thought it was strange that it seemed indefinite. I went back several times to look for it and missed it, both in the abstract and in the manuscript. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm sure that's not the first error that I've made on the podcast, and it won't be the last error I've made on the podcast. So uh, I'm pretty confident most of you out there don't don't take anything I say uh, uh, as, as fact without further verifying it, or at least I, I hope you wouldn't. Uh, but do want to uh, to mention that uh, you know errors on podcasts can have uh, you know complications uh, down the down the road. And <clears throat> one uh, one podcast I recent listened to recently was Fresh Air with Terry Gross, a wonderful podcast. And this was actually a couple weeks ago, but I just listened to it this week uh, with the uh, the co directors of the movie Soul, which is an excellent movie to watch uh, with your children. Uh, I suggest watching it first though, <laughs> because it's it's heavy. Uh, and you may want to think about how to answer questions that your children have about, like, what's the meaning of life? Anyway, uh, in this podcast, one of the, the co-directors or co-writers talks about uh, having rhabdomyolysis and was told it was an allergic reaction to Tamiflu. And I had never heard that Oseltamivir could cause rhabdomyolysis. Uh, you don't see it really listed in the prescribing information. Uh, so you do a PubMed search for Oseltamivir, uh, which is Tamiflu and rhabdomyolysis, and you see there's a lot of cases of influenza report as causing rhabdo, but not Tamiflu, uh, which makes me think maybe it was influenza and not the drug, although it's impossible to say, hearing somebody say that on a podcast, but some people now, after hearing that, may decide, I don't want to take Tamiflu, because I heard about this one guy who had a bad reaction to it on a podcast, and maybe it wasn't even the drug. So, again, uh, I'll reiterate something that I think I've said on this podcast before, which is a common mantra I tell my students. Believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. Uh, and it's ironic coming from a podcast host to believe none of what you hear. But go ahead and verify it for yourself uh, because mistakes happen. And hopefully by listening to the podcast, you can find that information faster and more efficient and work through it uh, in a better way after listening to the podcast. Okay. So that's, that's the mea culpa, mea culpa for this week. So moving on to uh, a type of, of study I've been really looking forward to seeing. I had tweeted this last week. This was published uh, exactly we go, April 1st in Lancet Oncology, and this is from uh, two hospitals in Israel. It's published as a comment. Uh, it really is just a small study or kind of a letter to the editor. Uh, and it's the short-term safety of the, uh, the BNT162BT, the Pfizer uh, mRNA COVID-19 vaccine in patients with cancer treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, they gave these folks, um, you know, the standard dose of the COVID vaccine, Pfizer vaccine, every 21 days for two doses. They recommended everybody with cancer get it, including those re receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors. <clears throat> and then um, they did a telephone follow-up. Uh, 17 to 21 days after the first dose, 
uh, and then uh, a meeting of, of nineteen day or meeting of nine days or nineteen days after the second dose, um, and ask them you know a series of questions about side effects that they had. Now that's maybe not the best way to do it. There's some recall bias to be better at for these patients to have kept a symptom diary, but it's the best we have right now. So they looked at these patients getting immune checkpoint inhibitors, receiving the Pfizer vaccine, and asked, did you have side effects and what were they? Which is, which is an important uh, thing to capture because, of course, these patients were not included in the Pfizer study. We don't know if there is a higher risk of toxicity, which uh, you could one could theorize because immune checkpoint inhibitors allow the immune system to get more active, and that's how they are helpful for treating cancer. So they took everybody uh, who got a COVID vaccine on an immune checkpoint inhibitor um, at these two uh, medical centers in Israel, and they matched them to a healthy control by age and by sex. In every case except one, there was one 93-year-old. They couldn't find another 93-year-old of the same sex, same sex, so that was matched to an 89-year-old, and I, I think that that's fine. Uh, they originally identified 170 patients um, during them. It was a short period when they enrolled these folks, like two or three weeks in February. Um, with uh, receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors for cancer. Of the 173 refused the vaccine, mostly due to concerns about side effects. Uh, 137 received the first dose, and then 134 received the second dose. So three people didn't get the second dose. Uh, one was because they got COVID, and two, a patient had disease progression. And so, and so they, they, they changed treatment, or they passed away, or they know we're longer the study. All right, so they compared the rates of toxicity for these 134 folks to 134 healthy controls. Uh, and there was no difference in the rates of toxicities compared via chi-square test for all these side effects except for muscle pain. Uh, and muscle pain, if you look at the graph, occurred in about 20% of healthy controls and 33% of those on immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, that p-value was 0.024 via chi-squared, uh, which looks to be, which would, you know, if we take the standard alpha 0.05, would be statistically significant. Uh, notably, there were no immune-related adverse events from immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients after the vaccine, uh, including in patients, they don't say how many, but including in patients who had already had an immune-related adverse event. Um, so there was no like reemergence of immune-related uh, colitis or myocarditis or anything like that, which is good, right? So you know this, this kind of tells us these are very, very likely safe in the short term. And if they're safe in the short term, they're probably safe in the long term. That's what we've seen so far uh, with, with our COVID vaccines. Uh, in the supplement, you can see, you know, which drugs that they were on, and uh, I think it's important to mention that 87% of these 134 patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, it was a single-agent PD-1 or PDL-1 antibody. 13% of them received both ipilimumab and nivolumab combination, and it would be interesting to see if the higher rates, uh, higher rates of, of, um, of muscle pain, if those were maybe enriched in patients receiving ipi and nevo. Uh, we don't know from that, okay? So interesting, uh, again, uh, okay methodology. would love to see something prospective uh, where patients had a symptom diary to have a, you know, a, a more accurate comparison because there certainly could be some recall bias if you call someone 17 days after the dose and ask, did you have muscle pain? Did you have a fever? Did you have fatigue? It, it may be hard to remember if you had that unless it was a very severe uh, adverse event. Uh, but certainly no safety flags. If, they, if this was a drug company study, they would say no new safety signals were found. That's what they would say. And that's, that's kind of the takeaway here. So that's good news. So what, uh, if I were there, what I would do is I would go back to those 33 patients and anybody else who refused the vaccine uh, because they're worried about toxicity uh, while receiving the immune checkpoint and say, hey, 
this is what our experience here. So, you know, I've mentioned this before on the pod, this is the greatest public health effort of our lifetime is to, to educate and advocate for folks to get our COVID vaccine. So it includes those folks with, with cancer and on treatment. And it's the best data we have now about the safety of immune checkpoint inhibitors in those patients with cancer. So continuing to recommend that for our folks, as many of you already are doing. All right, the next, the, next, uh, the next COVID cancer vaccine tidbit is something you may already know. It's somewhat intuitive, and I'm a little ashamed I didn't think of this beforehand. And it's one of these things I, I have a, a PubMed alert set up for, like, COVID cancer vaccine or COVID chemotherapy vaccine. I forget what it is. So I found uh, this article, and when I click on that article, uh, you know, PubMed says, here are similar articles. There's a whole bunch of articles in this realm. And I told my wife about it, thinking, <laughs> look at something I know. She's like, oh, yeah, I know about that. She works in drug information, so she was aware of this. So obviously lymphadenopathy uh, is a common common uh, consequence of the COVID vaccine. That's kind of, you know, like your immune system's working, all right? So, so that's kind of a, a good thing. Uh, well, it didn't occur to me that that could potentially um, muddy the waters for someone going undergoing staging for cancer. Uh, or potentially affect a follow-up CT scan 30 months after starting treatment. And you might see lymphadenopathy on a PET scan and might think there's disease progression. But it could be from the COVID vaccine. So kind of obvious. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, so, so maybe those of you who are following cancer patients for, for efficacy, you know, your physician, you're, you're checking your CT scans every three months for whatever. Uh, so it would be useful information to ask, did you receive a, can- a COVID vaccine prior to uh, you know, your, your imaging and, and where did you get it? Which arm? Because you would expect the lymphadenopathy to be kind of in the, the, uh, the lymph drainage system. And if you are a pharmacist, I know many of you out there are and are giving COVID vaccines, uh, it may be worth considering asking patients, like if they have breast cancer, if the breast cancer is on the right side to give the COVID vaccine on their left, uh, on their left arm, on their left shoulder, so that the lymphadenopathy will be on the left side, not the the um, not in the sentinel lymph nodes uh, under the arm on the right side. So something certainly to consider, and you can PubMed this and find lots of stuff in there about lymphadenopathy post-COVID vaccination. Lots of lots of case reports, case series, even a few small uh, retrospective studies or, or that have that have shown this and seen this. So so fairly common to have some lymphadenopathy after this vaccine. All right. Uh, really, the big news this week, if you're an oncology pharmacist, <clears throat> is the Amboro study which was a German study uh, in, a, like a, in clinics in 11 uh, medical centers in Germany. The lead author here is Pauline uh, Durr, D-U-R-R, D-Umlaut, R-R. Uh, Pauline, uh, classic uh, German name uh, to me because that was my grandmother's name, and her family uh, spoke German, immigrated from Germany. So this is a randomized trial, the impact of pharmaceutical care and outcomes in patients receiving oral chemo. Um, Essentially, what they did is they took a hundred, they took two hundred patients, and they randomized them. Now, when you hear the methods, you're, it's probably going to sound very familiar for if you are an oncology pharmacist to what you do for your patients with oral chemo. Uh, you, you try to talk to them right away, uh, so like week zero, you try to follow up them one week later, uh, and then one month later, and then uh, three months later is what they did. So weeks zero, one, four, and twelve is. Um, what the pharmaceutical care folks did. So these were clinical pharmacists or clinical pharmacologists, as they called them in Germany, apparently, uh, with experience in, in hematology, oncology, looking at people getting any oral chemo after that was approved after 2001, I think. So anything post-imatinib, post-capecitabine, uh, they were counseling on up to a period of time. 
Uh, and so this would include an interview at each time point along with a counseling and training session focused on medication management. All right, so what medications are you taking? Are you taking any herbal supplements? Are there any drug-drug interactions? Uh, counseling and training on how to take the drug, uh, how to store it, food-drug interactions, um, how to uh, prevent side effects, and if you have side effects, how to manage them yourself if you need to, and then adherence counseling and probably adherence assessment, I would assume. Uh, now, it's a little hard to put down on paper what you do uh, in practice, uh, especially the control arm here uh, is, is written, I think, a little vague. It's hard for me to understand what the control arm got. Um, uh, and part, part of that is just uh, I don't know how things are done in Germany. So if anybody out there uh, is involved in this study in Germany, I know we have some German listeners, uh, contact me and let me know kind of what this control arm, what, what you think it is. I know there was, there was probably a med rec and an education sheet and some sort of patient interview, but I don't know who did the, the interview. Uh, they did have standard education sheets on each drug as well as education sheets on managing things like hand-foot syndrome, like if you're dispensing or giving somebody capecitamine. Uh, now, this was a small study, right? 200 patients, 100 per arm. Uh, the primary endpoint uh, was the number of drug-related problems, and that would be like side effects and unresolved medication errors, which could be dosing errors, it could be drug-drug interactions that weren't fixed by either pharmacist, the patient, uh, or the uh, prescriber. So the mean number of drug-related problems uh, was 3.85 in the, in the pharmacy group versus 5.81 in the control group. That's about two fewer on average uh, drug-related problems. It's p-value uh, less than 0.01. There was increased patient satisfaction uh, in the group uh, receiving pharmaceutical care. Now, I don't know how it is in Germany, but in the United States, patient satisfaction scores can potentially have implications on reimbursement uh, and quality star ratings and things like that. So there may be financial incentive uh, for folks to have better patient satisfaction. Uh, there was a composite endpoint that looked at severe toxicity, so CTCAE, uh, grade 3 plus adverse events, which would be serious enough potentially to hospitalize patients, um, treatment discontinuation, uh, unscheduled hospitalization or death, uh, and there was a statistical improvement in favor of those in the pharmaceutical care arm. Now this, this ratio here is, is 0.48, that's a big effect size, composite level 0.32 to 0.71 p-value less than 0.001. To have a 200-person study and end up with with a, a more than 50% decrease in the risk of this composite endpoint is impressive. I mean, that's you, you're not seeing that in any AFib studies of DOAC versus warfarin. Uh, that's that's a pretty noticeable effect size there. Um, and, and just looking further into the, the supplement of some of the things that were found, like like 30 of these, uh, these drug-related problems were drug-drug interactions. Uh, 16 were food drug interactions, and by the way, a lot of those drug drug interactions were like acid suppressant therapy with things like dasatinib. Um, 14 were insufficient monitoring, like not getting a QT uh, interval or not getting an EKG to look at QTC for somebody on mitostarin or ribocyclib. Uh, three were no VTE prophylaxis with linalidomide. One was, uh, I, I don't I didn't know this, and this may be a difference between a European standard and American standard, is one person on pembrolidomide did not have hepatitis B virus serology looked for hep B virus reactivation, which has been reported in the PI with pomalidomide. Uh, the PI doesn't recommend monitoring, I, and I, I don't know that that's an American standard, at least um, I'm not aware of that if it is, but it looks to be something they looked for in Germany. So again, there might be some differences between the German practice and your practice locally where you are, but this is a randomized trial 
there are a lot of very similar studies like this that are retrospective studies saying we did something very similar to this. We talked to them right away, talked to patients right away when they start their oral chemo. One week later, or maybe every week for the first month and every month thereafter, uh, that takes a lot of time and it's not always feasible to, to, to follow up with all these patients to do that. Um, but, and this is published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. This is a big, this is a big paper. Uh, and it's one that every oncology pharmacist should read and every oncology pharmacy manager is probably gonna have uh, like memorized after they write their next couple like, uh, you know, job proposals to add oncology pharmacists for clinics and in and, and hospital or in clinics uh, based on this. Um, so really, really uh, pretty cool, pretty cool paper, good paper. Um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you're gonna see this cited a lot going forward. Uh, and, and is going to be a pivotal paper here uh, for as far as oncology, uh, oncology clinical pharmacy. All right, and with a couple FDA updates. So we talked about uh, secutuzumab govitecan's FDA approval when it came out. That's the trope two monoclonal antibody that's linked to SN38, the active metabolite of ironitecan. FDA approved for triple negative breast cancer. That was an accelerated approval. The ASCENT study, by the way, there's an ASCENT study with acalabrutinib. There's an ASCENT study with like clopidogrel. Let's stop using the word ASCENT for clinical trials. It's confusing, all right? Just call it, you know, like socotizumab govitecan for triple negative breast cancer. Like that's how you can call the study. That's fine. Anyway, uh, so ASCENT came out of ESMO uh, last fall. It was ta- We talked about it on the pod, and it showed an overall survival benefit. Um, I'm not going to go over that trial again, uh, but the FDA gave it a regular approval, uh, you know, sizable median overall survival difference in the third line setting for triple negative breast cancer patients uh, randomized to either socotizumab, govitecan, or physician's choice chemo, which was either aribulin, venorobine, gemcitabine, or capecitabine. Cat curves separate fairly quickly and fairly dramatically. Hazard ratio is 0.41, sorry, 0.51. So again, pretty, pretty big effect size there. Um, not published yet, so there still may be some, uh, and maybe even you start to expect it in, in these sort of studies, maybe even some, uh, you know, some funny business in the inclusion exclusion criteria. I haven't been able to look at that yet. Twitter let me down. I tried to, to look, usually on Twitter you can search Ascent, like ESMO, uh, and you can find people who took pictures of what, of like the baseline demographics between the groups. I haven't been able to find that yet, so final judgment on this is reserved for publication, but... Uh, even if there's some funny business, that's a pretty large effect size. And the last thing is not necessarily new. The FDA, it's new in the FDA approved uh, an every two-week dosing regimen of cetuximab, 500 milligrams per meter squared every two weeks. This date has been out there since I was in residency, so many folks have already been doing this. Uh, you know, the original approved dose was 400 milligrams per meter squared as a loading dose on week one, and then 250 milligrams per meter squared weekly. There is now FDA approved uh, labeled dose of 500 per meter squared, milligrams per meter squared every two weeks. But that's not necessarily new. I imagine lots of you have already been doing that. But if not, there's an FDA approval now to support a change in that practice. Uh, allow patients to come back every two weeks, uh, which would align nicely with their full Fox, full Fury. But most of you are probably already doing the Q2 weeks. All right, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me both on uh, Twitter at PharmDietNib. Uh, I follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And if you're a German oncology pharmacist involved in a board, let me know if you want to come on the pod and talk about it. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.
Thank you.